And I think that's what's exciting to me about the city is how do you solve this problem of not only how people move through a city, but how they feel when they do that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm truly honored and grateful to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, July 30th, 2021, and this is episode number 85. Wow, seriously, time is flying by, folks. And I just have to say how much I appreciate y'all tuning in. We have already had our best month ever, more than doubling the number of downloads in May, which, by the way, was a solid month by any measure. It's so cool to know that you are out there and these important conversations are making their way around the globe. And I have another good one here for you, because in this week's episode, I get to share this truly fascinating conversation I recently had with Dr. Robin Mazumder, who just received his PhD from the University of Waterloo in cognitive neuroscience, studying the impacts of urban design on our health and well-being. Among other things, we talk about how we, as humans, respond to our built environments what role access to nature plays in our cities, and how we can perhaps better understand and work productively to address our dependency on automobiles. But before we roll into those discussions, please allow me a brief moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. As many of you may already know, Active Towns is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization with a mission to help communities around the globe create a culture of activity by transforming their built environment into safe and inviting places for everyone, or as I like to say, all ages and abilities. If you're in a financial position to help, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and simply navigate to the donation page. However, if making a contribution is simply not in the cards right now, no worries. I completely understand. But you can still help out in a big way by spreading the word about Active Towns and this podcast within your personal and professional networks. Thank you all so very much for tuning in and for whatever support you're able to provide as I strive to grow this movement to create a culture of activity. Oh, and one last thing before we get started. I'd be honored if you'd subscribe to, follow, rate, and review the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform as this helps connect others to this content. And be sure to check out and subscribe to the Active Towns YouTube channel as I'm posting new original content out there weekly. Thanks. Okay, time to get this conversation with Robin Mazumder rolling. Robin, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thanks for having me. First of all, hey, thank you so much for allowing this me this opportunity to connect. And uh, we were just talking before we hit the the record button. You're you're in Boise, Idaho, <laughs> so yeah, very cool. I've been in Boise for about ten days. It's it's a really interesting city, and um, yeah, I've been able to experience all that it has to offer. It's it's worth visiting. Fantastic. Now, mm-hmm. it, it is a little bit of a different environment from where you just finished up your doctorate, which was over in Ontario, right? Yeah, it was in uh, Waterloo, the University of Waterloo. Fantastic. So uh, share a little bit about yourself and your 
background and what you were doing there in Waterloo. Okay, so um, I did my PhD in cognitive neuroscience, where I looked at the psychological impacts of urban design. And to do that, we used wearable technology to measure people's uh, physiological responses to urban environments. We used um, psychological questionnaires, uh, and we did that research both within the city. So we took people out uh, with these devices uh, to examine the effect of uh, tall buildings on our mental health. There's a small body of research that suggests that there's a psychological pressure to being in these environments where you can't see the sky. And so that's what I was really uh, curious about. But the other half of my PhD was also looking at how we can use virtual reality to examine urban environments. And so I took a 360 degree video of these real uh, urban environments, particularly, sorry, specifically in London, where I was doing a fellowship at uh, University College London. So we took a a five-minute video of uh, the city of London, which they have lots of really tall buildings, and then brought that back to Waterloo, where we put people in virtual reality and studied that those responses and, and found the same thing, that people find these environments um, uncomfortable. But, you know, that's that was my PhD, but it was informed by my background working in clinical community mental health, uh, where I worked with people in cities and started to kind of wonder about this connection between our urban environment and our well-being and what we can do from a, I guess, a, a structural perspective of a city to facilitate a sense of joy and well-being. Right, right. Yeah, it makes me uh, think back to uh, one of the books from Jan Gale and one of the chapters where he talked about human scale and 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 mm-hmm. talking about the, the the height of the buildings and talking about the fact that, you know, somewhere around that the five to six stories is like the maximum because uh, beyond that you can't really see faces quite well you know whether you're a person out on a balcony working looking down or somebody you know on the ground looking up and making that connection so the a little bit more human centered and human scale yeah i think i think what um i tried to do with my research and i think you know the urban realities lab which i was a part of which is led by dr colin allard who if you haven't read it yet, he wrote a book called Places of the Heart, which kind of examines this, this uh, conversation. Um, but what I, you know, what I try to do is really uh, use, you know, neuroscience and other, and other sciences to develop a way to actually measure these things that we kind of intuitively understand about our environments and then see where it doesn't work. And there might be some room for creativity and, uh, you know, you know, new ways of building things. Right. And so uh, I suppose this is where uh, the, all the human-centered design concepts are coming from, because I know you're, you're very, very passionate about that. Yeah, so um, human-centered design is something that really evolved over time as an interest for me. I uh, first learned about it in my occupational therapy education. We did a human factors project where we had to really examine you know, how you could use technology or design to facilitate uh, the needs of somebody who might have a disability. You know, uh, we developed a hockey stick for, for, for kids who with cerebral palsy. And that was a human factors approach, which was, which was a very, very human-centered design process because we had to consider all the needs and, and take a, a magnifying glass to that. And then, you know, moving forward from that, occupational therapists really considered the environment. So we always consider the environment in our models that inform our practice and, and how we provide treatment to patients. But interestingly enough, I had a one and a half year, I guess, break between being an occupational therapist and starting my PhD, where 
I ran a startup accelerator at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. And there I took a course in design thinking uh, from the D school at, at Stanford. And, you know, fundamentally for me, the, the common thread through all of this, even to my research is, is trying to examine or use empathy to examine, you know, people's experiences and, and, you know, you can measure that, you can ask them questions and you can also, you know, strap things to people's brains and see what's happening. Right. Right. In the human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And so what's really cool about all this is like, you're, it seems as if you're really leveraging technology to have a better understanding about that, the, the interface that humans are having with the built environment. Yeah. You know, I, it, over the course of my, uh, when I was an occupational therapist and uh, through my PhD, I, I maintained pretty good connection with the cities I lived in. I was on cycling committees and on task forces for, for poverty. And the whole time, the thing that was really apparent to me was that there was this issue of this very obvious choice that needs to be made about how our city should be designed. But the necessity of evidence, because, you know, some people just don't, you know, don't <laughs> believe in that. So you have to kind of create a case for these things. And so that's, I guess, one way to to try to solve that problem and using technology can do that. However, I will say that it's really important uh, when it comes to using technology to consider the bias that's involved in it and continue to examine, you know, what stories aren't told and what questions need to be asked if it's, if it doesn't represent the majority, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, recently there was a Forbes article uh, that was out there and uh, you had made the comment that, uh, you know, this is, it's critical, you know, to the, how the built environment actually affects our sense of dignity and well-being. Expand upon mm -hmm. that a little bit more. Yeah, you know, dignity is something that was, uh, I guess, central to my therapeutic pra practice as an occupational therapist. Um, I worked with people who had been institutionalized, ex experienced marginalization from many aspects of their life, and uh, I was working with a peer support worker who was on our healthcare team, but their role was someone who had a lived experience of having a mental health issue who has now um, gotten better and is a professional and helps healthcare professionals understand what it what the patients need or the clients need. And one of the key things that he really hammered into me and the whole team was dignity is a very important. And he actually introduced this term to me called dignity encounters. And so every encounter you have with somebody is an opportunity to support their dignity. And so body language, you know, how you speak to them, how you speak about them, are you listening to them? Uh, are you mirroring back what they're saying? There's all these things that you can do to really make someone feel seen and honored um, and not patronized. And I thought about that within the context of a city. And I wrote an article about how urban design can, can, can use this, you know, this model. So every point in a city where someone's ability to move freely is, is affected by a piece of infrastructure, whether it's a, a traffic light or a big road, you know, you consider their dignity in that in that circumstance. Um, and I think it really it really came, became apparent to me in the midst of a, a terrible Canadian winter. The sidewalks aren't cleared, uh, and so I would see people with, with walkers not being able to get around. And I, there's constantly reminded that you know we can aspire towards a happy city or uh, you know any city, but if we don't ensure that everybody who lives in these city in our cities experiences dignity. Uh, then I think we're really, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And that just isn't, you know, by virtue of, of, of urban design, it's also housing um, and all sorts of other social policies. But I think dignity should be 
probably one of the top priorities when it comes to how we choose to build our cities. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how uh, you just channeled a little bit of uh, uh, Charles Montgomery there in, in Happy City. He's <laughs> also, uh, you know, up in the Vancouver area there. And, and I know in his in his book, he even, you know, sort of reflected upon the tall buildings and, and how, it, you know, when you're living in that environment, maybe the only interaction you have is like when you're in a, a, a closed in, you know, tight space on the elevators going up and down. And it makes me yeah. chuckle. I'm have to reach out to him and say, you know, I wonder what that would have been like uh, during the pandemic of being in that type of environment and then and being, you know, forced to 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 be able to get to your home is in in a really, really tight space. I'm sure that must have felt a very even more uncomfortable than what it was normally going up and down in an elevator. Yeah. Yeah. Charles is a friend of mine and actually reading the happy city while I was an occupational therapist was what inspired me to really, uh, it was validating to see that other people were interested in this thing that I thought was, I was alone in, but yeah, yeah. There's a lot to consider, uh, when it comes to the context of the pandemic and the broader conversation around cities and well-being. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that you mentioned in there is it, it didn't take long for you to sort of uh, insinuate and, and hint towards the auto centric design of our cities. And, and so you and I have never met, but mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll fix that at some point in time <laughs> in the near future. I hope so. But, uh, but we've been connected on LinkedIn for a while. And so I've been able to see some of the posts that you've been putting out there uh, on occasion. And, and uh, that's where I saw uh, you had mentioned that Forbes article. But uh, mm-hmm. one of my favorite quotes uh, from you actually comes from uh, Melissa and Chris Bruntlett's uh, new book, Curbing Traffic, mm-hmm. The Human Case mm-hmm. for Fewer Cars in Our Lives, which is just recently published by Island Press. And the quote is, is as follows. It's the, the <laughs> disproportionate investment put into car movement and storage takes away the resources to create beautiful things. The car has sterilized the city and completely removed the human element. And I, I follow that up with uh, another. So that's one of my favorite quotes from the book. Mm-hmm. But I also follow this up with the fact that in 2020, in February, you wrote a post about our addiction to cars. <laughs> so I think yeah. both I think both of those deserve a little bit more elaboration. So dive into sure. it. Wow. Well, thanks for highlighting those. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to read their book. So yeah, I think it's 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 a really challenging conversation because. You know, when we look at cities, I'm in Boise right now, and it's a city in the midst of, you know, uh, lots of people are moving here. It's becoming a cool city in this region in America, and housing affordability is being affected by this, and you know, all these things happening. And I see a few bike lanes downtown and very wide roads. We have been addicted to cars, and I say that uh, respectful of what addiction means, um, and I say that to use the metaphor of dependence. And when you build your cities around something you're dependent on that takes up a lot of space, that really, you know, we know isn't the most efficient way to get around. We get these landscapes that are oriented to the movement of an automobile. And then you get surface parking lots and you get people speeding through your neighborhood. But fundamentally, we have to find a balance because people have to use cars. You know, that's and some, not everyone can afford to live in the downtown core, so they might have to drive in unless there's transit. And so for me, this addiction or this dependency has really warped, I think, our sense of what we think humans need. And perhaps, you know, no pun intended, 
intended drives us towards a future where everything's just about uh, work and not social connection. And for my PhD, I looked at the effect of skyscrapers and a big argument for skyscrapers or population density. And yes, we have to consider that. But when you look at a aerial view of Houston, you see a lot of skyscrapers, but almost twice as much space dedicated to parking lots. Right. You know, and the human element to me is is a space where we can connect with other people. And if that's dedicated to the storage of cars or the cars making our environments hostile, then you sterilize the city. Right. You remove, you completely remove any kind of character and personality from it. I think yeah. it's, it seems extreme, but you know, again, I think it's, it's really exciting because I see lots of space up my window here recycling infrastructure. So yeah, we did build our cities around cars, but we have an advantage over older cities who don't have the luxury of very wide roads to do, you know, creative things. Right. And, and the, those creative things. And, and oftentimes what that means is that uh, we're redefining how that space is then allocated. And mm -hmm. in other words, there's, there's some trade-offs that are made and saying, well, you know, yes, uh, <laughs> We've got wide streets and fast moving traffic, but it doesn't have to stay that way. And, and I think that that's one of the things that Chris and Melissa, you know, talked about a lot in their first book of, you know, the strategies that various cities uh, around the, the globe have been, uh, you know, sort of implementing, you know, you know, putting forth is trying to redefine that public space. But mm -hmm. there, it's difficult. You know, there's, there's challenges like, for instance, right there in Boise, where you're at. Uh, it's a Western city. It's it's really been built uh, based on the car model, but even the city itself doesn't have control of its streets. One of the interesting things about uh, about Idaho and Boise in particular is that all of the streets in the city of of, of Boise are actually controlled by the county. So Ada mm -hmm. County actually controls and and <laughs> determines what happens with the streets and mm -hmm. the the values that they might have as a county are much, you know, are, are much more car centric because it includes all of the rural areas. So it's, they're starting to make progress. It's as you indicated that uh, there, you're seeing some, some signs that there's some redefining of the street space. And I was there in 2017 when some of that was just starting to happen. And then uh, I think either last week or the week before, there was a big announcement from Ada County that they're really doubling down and are going to try to make uh, the streets, especially there in Boise, much more uh, active mobility friendly. So it'll be interesting to see how all that fleshes out because that's a cultural shift. And, you know, it, it's hopefully we can avoid the sort of cultural wars that take place between, uh, you know, the autocentric addiction that you had talked about before. Yeah. And, and I, and I, part of, you know, in, in that blog post, I really try to make it clear that this isn't about blaming people. Right. I think I'm past that. You know, there was a time on Twitter, I might've had a couple of rants about bike lanes like five years ago, but I've done some work on myself and I've realized that shame and blame are really kind of toxic. And right. so how do you have conversations about cities that aren't divisive, um, that don't put people against each other based on how they move around, but to say, Hey, like you've got grandkids or you, you know, what do you, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about cars driving fast by you while you drive downtown, while you're, sorry, while you're walking around downtown, which you perhaps drove to, you know, we can, I think there's a way for us to develop a sense of understanding that leads us to the, to a conclusion that 
perhaps might be logical based on our current environment, <laughs> our climate change and all these other things, you know, we can get, get people there. I think um, if we just kind of show them what's possible and I, and I think, you know, it's, it's happening. I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. We, uh, we, we get into grooves, we get into, you know, habit formation and uh, you, you use the term addiction and, and I, and, and I, you know, equate that too, because it's like, once you, you know, grabbing those car keys and, and, and doing that time and time and time again, even for short trips that, you know, arguably could have been a walking trip or it could have been a biking trip. But if you're in that groove of constantly reaching for the keys and it's just not, you know, been assimilated as a normal uh, behavior, a normal pattern that you would do, you know, it's difficult to break and it's difficult to change that. Now, the way that we look at things, you know, or the way that I look at things from an active town's perspective is absolutely we have to transform our built environment into a safe and inviting all ages and abilities uh, environment, which truly embraces and helps support that behavior change and sustain a positive, healthy behavior of active mobility. And Mm -hmm. the more pleasant you can make that experience each and every time helps with that habit formation. You get that dopamine release in the brain and it's just, you're able to start getting those traces of habit formation and thereby creating a new positive addiction. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's it's great that you're focusing on on terms like pleasantness. That's what is a we use that a lot in environmental psychology and the research that we do. And you know, safe and inclusive also very important in all ages and abilities. Yes, I I worked uh, as a pediatric therapist with kids with learning uh, disabilities and learning disorders, and I also worked with ninety two year olds as an occupational therapist and working across the lifespan and also considering, you know, other aspects like race and gender and socioeconomic uh, status and what part of the city you live in, all of those things really contribute to, you know, how you can experience a park in a way that you get drive peace and have that positive experience. And I think, you know, one thing moving forward for my own work, at least I just proposed a theory called experiential equity. It's being published right now in an academic textbook that's focused on Uh, urban design responses to COVID, experiential equity really intends to, you know, build on a, on a history of research that examines the marginalized experience in in public space. And I want to use neuroscience to use that to measure these psychological impacts to, you know, continue to challenge and think about ways uh, or how we define inclusive spaces in cities. Yeah. That's fascinating stuff too. And uh, yeah, because we, we have to admit that not everybody experiences space and our public realm in the same way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's a product of, uh, you know, architectural or urban design decisions, but also the policy and the social climate. And, uh, and I think that's what's exciting to me about the city is how do you solve this problem of, not only how people move through a city, but how they feel when they do that. Right. All right. 
Mm-hmm. Also makes me think of uh, some of the work that Sussman and Hollander uh, have been working on in terms of, you know, even the architecture and the the difference between, you know, modernist architecture versus traditional uh, home design architecture and whether whether we can see faces in them and have that, again, that human-centered design as part of what we're experiencing around us. Yeah, it's, it's a very complicated space. I, I took a class on the neuroscience of face perception, and I thought about that in relation to, you know, architecture and the uh, there's a lot to be learned. And uh, so I'm going to do some more research before I make any conclusions, but it's a very exciting space to, to be exploring. Yeah. 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 What, what role does nature play in some of this? Have you seen some of that pop up in, in some of your work? Yeah. So, I mean, in environmental psychology, I, I think a pretty big body part of the research, which is, which here's a, an, an issue with environmental psychology. It refers both to psychology of, the environment as it kind of pertains to climate, but also our physical environment. So <laughs> it's confusing, but um, environmental psychology, a lot of it uh, looks at the effect of green space. And, you know, uh, there's three dominant theories. There's attention restoration theory, there's stress restoration theory, and then there's something that they call the perceptual fluency account. Both attention restoration theory and stress restoration theory basically say that you uh, restore these resources of either, you know, you you reduce stress or you restore attention when you're in green space. It's through the colors you see, it's through the visual complexity, it's through the sounds you hear like water and, you know, birds chirping. Uh, some people have done research on the smell, the, the, the scent on the phenols in the air, uh, Shinrin Yoku, or which in Japanese means forest bathing. They talk about right. the your bathing and the smell of the forest. So there's a lot of things going on that can affect your brain. And the perceptual fluency piece is really looking at the flow state that you get in when you, there's all these fractals of, of, you know, diverse leaf patterns and things like that. But fundamental to all three of these is being in a non-threatening environment. Uh, so that's something to consider uh, when we want to use or make an argument for green space as being restorative or stress reducing for people is, okay, perfect. What's the threat? Is it next to a really busy road? You know, do people of color feel safe in this space, particularly black people in the U.S.? Do women feel safe there? You know, in, in Vienna, they use, I think it's called gender mainstreaming. Uh, they use a gendered lens on urban design because they noticed that women, young women specifically didn't use a park and were curious about it. And so, then they get into the psychology of sight lines and lighting and proximity to other, you know, busy spaces. There's a lot to consider when it comes to why green space is good for us. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating and complicated at the same time. <laughs> it, it, it also sort of a little bit goes a long way too. And, and, and what I mean by that is as follows when I was in uh in Toronto uh, a couple of years ago for the NACTO conference, I uh, was able to uh, ride my Brompton around on, on a quite a few different streets and, and you know, testing out uh, some of the infrastructure that they had in the downtown area there. And the difference between uh, some of the protected bikeways that they had in place that were uh, just using concrete barriers and very mm-hmm. hard skate sort of materials versus the, the the ones that they had where they were using the planter boxes and had the beautiful foliage in the in the planter boxes, which 
at the time, I think they were uh, switching out uh, between sort of a, a fall winter theme and a spring summer theme. And so it was interesting to, to just experience the difference between a hardscape sort of protection and because both of them felt safe and inviting, but one felt pleasant, which is the word we used earlier. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting observation. I gave a I just because I just finished my PhD, I've been interviewing for jobs and I gave a job talk for a position a while ago in a forestry faculty and it was looking at green space and well-being. And one of my pitches was I'm trying to look at that exact thing because I I agree. I think it really changes the experience of it. And the other thing I was really curious about was whether it changed the perception of them of the of the infrastructure itself if the infrastructure is a landscape architecture as opposed to just another annoying bike lane you know what does that do to its acceptance within the city as a whole and you know the divisiveness around it but it, what uh what i think is interesting is that we actually did a study on this not on this specifically but we looked at how a hardscape laneway versus a greenscape laneway uh, would affect well-being amongst some other experiments and that was actually done in collaboration with with Charles Montgomery during the Pro Walk, Pro Bike, Pro Place conference in Vancouver in 2016. Right. And we found that the Greenscape Laneway was associated with all sorts of, you know, positive benefits, like more, it was a more welcoming environment. People were happier there. Um, they cared more about their environment, environmental stewardship. They were, they were more, you know, concerned with vandalism and meeting neighbors, all these things. So when you consider what, you know, I think green space is great. We should inject it everywhere, you know, wherever it, it makes sense. And I think it can have that softening effect that you described. Yeah, yeah. And it's practical too. I mean, one of the things that I noticed uh, at uh, the, the the Walk Bike Places conference this year in Indianapolis uh, was with the cultural trail and how well they, they put in the cultural trail, uh, which was essentially taking a lane uh, away from motor vehicles and then transforming it into a really, really high quality, separated and protected uh, bike infrastructure. And in some cases, you had high quality greenscape uh, areas that uh, were separating the, the cycle track from the, the moving motor vehicles. And in some cases, you also had trees planted there. And so you also have the advantage of tree canopies, which are so incredibly mm -hmm. uh, important in the urban environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for heat specifically. And, you know, we're in the midst of a heat wave in Boise here. Yeah. Yeah, trees, uh, <laughs> trees do a lot for us, more than just making us feel better uh, from a psychological perspective. Yeah, 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 having that, that necessary tree canopy. So you had mentioned that you were kind of interviewing for various positions and things of that <laughs> nature. So, and you've got the, you know, the upcoming paper on experiential equity. What else are you mm -hmm. working on? What's, what's sort of on your, your radar screen right now? You know, it's, it's been a really interesting thing to, to, to get a PhD in the midst of a pandemic. My intention uh, before doing my PhD was to return to an, actually an occupational therapy school to teach OT students about this connection between urban health and uh, and 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 design. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting because the other thing that I'm I'm kind of uh, working on right now, I, I didn't bring it up at first because it's it's still a work in progress. Is um, I signed a, an agreement with a literary agency in January, and I've been working on a book. And that's actually been a, you know, a blessing in disguise to not have gone straight into work because it's the pandemic's giving me a lot to think about. I've had a lot of time to, <laughs> to think about all those things and a little bit of time to write. And 
so you know writing that book is something that i'm i'm quite keen on and hopefully we'll get something to my agent soon and something else that i'm i'm interested in i've been on you know on a bit of a an interesting journey just from being around you know from being in mexico to being in boise and now uh, slowly heading back to uh canada is I want to start capturing some of these experiences that I have. So I bought all the YouTube cameras and I'll have a lot of content and I just have to sit down and, uh, and put it together. And you might see a YouTube channel pop up at some point, just because it's a way for me to communicate that I think Twitter and blog posts and all the other mediums don't allow. So I, you know, I think a book is, is in the near future uh, and, uh, and maybe some other ways of engaging with people on social media. Oh, I'm super excited about that. <laughs> and actually, all three of those are, are wonderful. If you do end up uh, in a teaching role and being able to help, mm-hmm. you know, teach, you know, future generations and in, in, uh, in terms of the uh, professionals working at that interface of, in uh, occupational therapy and things of, of that nature, so incredibly important to understand the impact that our urban and design has on health and well-being. Uh, but gosh, the book, fantastic. That would be super, super cool to see that and and obviously we'll have you back on the podcast to to you know talk about the book more in depth and and all that and yeah, uh, yeah i'm right there cheering you on with with youtube uh, again make sure you go check out my uh, uh interview that i had with uh, jason slaughter from not I just will. bikes he's got a great story he's uh, a canadian who uh just basically gave up on the toronto area and moved his oh. family, moved his life to, to Amsterdam and oh, okay. launched a YouTube channel. And he has gone absolutely viral. I mean, it's the, wow. cool, it's the coolest thing to see. Uh, basically he monetized within six weeks and then, you know, he's well over 200,000 sub- subscribers now. It's a really, wow. really neat thing. And oh, uh, in that particular episode, for those of you who may not know, uh, I did produce that as a video episode as well. So uh, you can pop on over and see the Active Towns YouTube channel and, uh, and, and see uh, Jason in person on that. So it's good stuff. Well, yeah, I, would be cheering you on for, for all three of those for sure. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. You, you know, what's interesting, I guess, from the, from the academic perspective is that the, you know, the, the work that I do was basically named two years ago, it's environmental neuroscience, and it really sits at the intersection of many disciplines. So into the, in, in what's, you know, uplifting is, in the recent months, I've received many emails from students who are like, how do I do learn about what you did for your PhD? (laughs) You know, uh, so I think there's some really interesting opportunities for, you know, perhaps to even kind of help create a new space or a new field to examine these questions that uh, we discussed on your uh, podcast today. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. (laughs) So is there anything that we haven't yet touched upon that you want to make sure you, you leave the listeners with? No, I think it's. It, I, I I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to talk with you. I I was a little quiet on social media for a while just because I was focused on my book and also trying to take a break from just paying too much attention to my environment because <laughs> sometimes it can be stressful. And yeah. and I recently started using Twitter again and excited to you know continue to participate in these conversations. It's where you know uh, perhaps the the end is in sight with this pandemic who knows and it's a really exciting time to really address some serious issues that we have in our cities when it comes to the way they're built and to the way that they're policed and surveilled and 
just to ensure, like we said, you know, how can everyone feel safe in our cities? Yeah, yeah. And, and my yeah. rule of thumb uh, out there in social media and especially on Twitter is uh, take a deep breath, keep it positive. Because uh, as you as you, mentioned, you know, as you mentioned, going negative and, and shaming and blaming just isn't going to make it happen. We won't see uh, the change that we wish. Yeah. And I, I, I don't fault people who do it. It just doesn't work for me. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So. There, there, there's a place, there's a place for, for all of that. Well, the final totally. question that I have for you is, is, is the following, you know, based on uh-huh. your, your experience and your research, uh, what advice would you have for the listeners who are out there who are inspired by these thoughts and these discussions, but they want to make a difference in their community? What, what mm. do you think they should do? What a great question. I would look for any opportunity to join city committees, uh, show up to the meetings if you have the time and flexibility in your schedule to do so, you know, the meetings that concern you. Think about creative ways to make your front lawn a, a fun place for your neighbors to come hang out, you know, when that's safe to do so, um, if that's safe yet. I've have, I have a, a few projects that just started out of pure fun. I started a snowball fight with my friend Jeff Chase in Edmonton, which brought 3,000 people. Um, and that was started with a tweet. And then next thing you know, 3,000 emails pop up bike lanes, which were actually really intended to be uh, a political statement. It didn't, it took, it was, we spent $400 on, on flower planters and uh, created a 10 block bike lane. And, and it wasn't me, it was a group of people. So my advice would be find opportunities to, to, to let the city know what, you know, your needs are and perhaps advocate for the needs of other who don't, others who don't have a voice and maybe run for mayor. You know, I, I think one thing that is fascinating to me about cities is that, is that hopefully if we create the right conditions, everyone's got a shot to really build the city and that sometimes might involve politics. I've been asked a number of times and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for my academic career or whatever it is to bore me or something. But when I'm fit, maybe 55 or something, I'll anchor it. But um, I think, I think just get involved in your city however you can. And if you have a platform and, a, and privilege and you can allow other people to take some of that space, I think that's a really important thing to consider as well. Some people don't have that op- opportunity. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. You got something there for everyone, uh, all the way from uh, making One your, stop your shop. yeah, no, it's great. Making your front yard a little bit more welcoming to the neighbors, to a snowball fight, to pop up bike lanes yeah. with flower pots. By the way, Jonathan Fertig uh, uh, was a uh, oh, yeah. past guest, and so he'll he'll dig that uh, that that you mentioned that all the way up to yeah. to being mayor. So I like that you covered out all the bases. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think there's so many things that we can do uh, to make our cities more uh, personable and have character. And I think that starts with just people who have that wild idea in the shower before bed, you know, do that thing and ask for help from your neighbors and it'll probably make your neighborhood a friendlier place. Love it. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. love it. Hey, what's the best way for folks to uh, follow along with your work? Well, robinmazumder.com. So that's R-O-B-I-N-M-A-Z-U-M-D-E-R or .com for American Z, <laughs> Robin Mazumder. And that same uh, for Twitter handle, Instagram, and uh, the website's under construction, but you can expect a blog post from you soon. It's been about eight months. <laughs> An update. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, hey, Robin, it's been such a pleasure uh, chatting with you here today. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Thanks, John. 
Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 85 of the Active Towns podcast. When we think of our cities and public spaces, we probably have an intuitive sense as to what places are pleasant, welcoming, and interesting, but we probably don't really think too deeply about it. Well, I hope this conversation with Robin about his work to better understand our urban experience was as thought-provoking and engaging for you as it was for me. Please be sure to follow Robin out on Instagram and Twitter. And again, his handle is at Robin Mazumder and his website, same name, RobinMazumder.com. I've included those links plus a plethora of others for the various books and articles we mentioned during this episode in the show notes, as well as out on the landing page for this episode at activetowns.org. And one last reminder, if you're enjoying the podcast and appreciate my efforts to profile the inspiring advances happening around the globe to promote a culture of activity, please help me out by making that tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. Please know that each and every donation is truly appreciated and really does make a huge difference in allowing me the ability to continue to produce this content. Doing so is easy. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to activetowns.org and click on the bright blue donate button or navigate to the fundraising page. Once there, you'll find direct links to our Patreon page and entire donation platform. Thank you all so very much for your support and for tuning in. That's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.